0: Good morning, guys. I know y'all want me to probably rush through this sermon. We can all get to the river and the lake, and I've got good news. I brought the sermon from three hours to only two this morning, so I'm just kidding. I'll get y'all out of here, but um, I'm excited you're all here. My name is Bo Riles. I get to be the ascending pastor here at Connection Church, uh, and I I love that privilege. And as Blake said, we want to welcome any of you first-time guests to Connection. Uh, We're going to be continuing our series called Knowing God. Uh, today I want to walk you through the book of Daniel. I'm super excited about that. We're going to be in chapter 6. Um, how many of you have heard the story of Daniel before? Raise your hand. Uh, most people know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's a well-known child story. Uh, but I want to share with you the, the ending of that story that people leave off a lot of times. But after Daniel's delivered from the lion's den, uh, King Darius takes his accusers and throws them, their wives, and their children into the lion's den, and it says all of their bones were crushed before they reached the bottom of the den. Uh, now, good story to tell your kids if they're misbehaving, maybe. I'm not sure, but uh, I will say this. A lot of times when we hear Daniel in the lion's den in a child story version, we get the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more underneath the surface that's there to pull out for even the most mature Christian. So hopefully we can do that today in a, in a simplified way. Um, but I want to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your provision. I pray that you would humble each and every one of us in here this morning uh, to the point of submission. That as we read your word together right now, it would soak in our hearts and we would leave here differently because of it, God. That we would have a better view of you, have a better view of Christ, have a better view of ourselves. So I pray that you would give us that transformation this morning as a family uh, and walk with us as we walk through your word. In your name I pray, amen. All right. So this is a story now. So I'm going to read 24 verses. It may be a lot, um, but I'll give you the best context I can up front. We'll read the passage, and then we'll pull it apart. But Daniel was from Judah, a a tribe of Israel or a kingdom of Israel. Um, And King Nebuchadnezzar actually takes over Judah. Um, He's a Babylonian king. He ends up taking people captive from there back to Babylon, Daniel being one of them. And uh, we see King Nebuchadnezzar basically try to... Peace in his kingdom. So he pulls all the wise men from Judah into his kingdom, into his household, and allows them to serve uh, with him again in order to keep peace between the people of Judah and the people of Babylon. Uh, Some really cool things start happening between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel finds favor with them, and fast forward just a little bit, and King Nebuchadnezzar's son, King Belshazzar, takes over, Uh, and kind of the same process happens there. Uh, He finds favor in Daniel. Daniel quickly rises to power. And then that jumps us into chapter 6, where we are today, where King Darius, who is a Medo-Persian king, so we've got a whole new empire taking over the Babylonian kingdom, uh, same thing. He finds favor with Daniel. Daniel quickly rises to power. And then that's where we start out in this passage this morning. So Daniel 6, verse 1, may take us a minute, just bear with me. So it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Think of these as local, more smaller uh, government officials. With three administrators, think governors, over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They knew the only way to get him was to find the one thing he was faithful to and trap him in it. And let's just say that's a a really amazing thing to be known for. Verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, notice how they appeal to his ego and how a lot of times this is kind of the same downfall for us. May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So basically, they're saying, King, you're so amazing. We trust you. We believe you can provide for us. We want everyone else to know how amazing you are, right? And when he says that it cannot be repealed, there's a lot of emphasis on the Medo-Persian law. They believe the king spoke on behalf of the gods, therefore it couldn't be revoked. And they also made it this way so that the king couldn't get, say, mad at his wife one day um, and issue a law that says women can't go out in public or something crazy and change his mind two or three days later. So... This can't be undone by man. That'll be a key piece. Remember that. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree? That during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den. The king answered, the decree stands, yes, in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, well, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So they trapped the king into manly law. The king was basically bound by man-made stuff. Now, so the king gave order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And then he took his accusers and threw them into the lion's den with their wives and their children. Now... That's a lot, I know, but just to get you a good, broad picture of the whole story, I want to kind of simplify things a little bit, and we're just going to ask or answer three simple questions today. What do we learn from Daniel? What do we learn from God? And how do we see a picture of Jesus? And I think those are three really big points, but again, we're going to keep it simple. So, number one, what do we learn from Daniel? Now, bear in mind, Daniel was a believer, so I'm speaking to believers in the room right now, and I'll tell you why. As we look at the things that Daniel done, I don't want anyone to misinterpret that for something that you can just go home and do these things and find favor with God. The first thing you've got to have is a relationship with Christ. And that comes by faith and faith alone. So don't misinterpret what I'm saying here by do, do, do. All right. If you're a believer, these are just things we should notice. When I think about Daniel, one word comes to mind and it's character. All right. More importantly, it's Christian character, Christian integrity. This is a guy who had gone under three different kingdoms up to Daniel chapter 6. Um, you know, he was, he was a, a slave, and like his future was uncertain, and yet he somehow rose to the top. Like, you, you know, he has to have character in order to find himself in that position, but when I think about our culture today, and I don't want to beat up on anyone, but character is not a word I would use to describe American culture in any shape or form, you know, and the scary part is it's, just, it's not just the secular world that I'm talking about. It's the church. It's religious people. It's people who claim to be Christians. A lot of times we don't see character as the most distinguishing mark for them. Um, now, the thing we have to understand about character, though, is you don't just choose to have it one day. You don't just up and decide that you're going to be a person formed by character. This is something that's created and crafted over a lifetime of building healthy rhythms, healthy habits, and making healthy decisions. Like, that's how character is built. J.D. Greer says your character is going to be determined by the first thing you do when you wake up tomorrow, right? Is it going to be to pull out your Bible and spend time in prayer, or are you going to yell at your kids to hurry up and get ready, or are you going to be late? And don't ask me which camp I fall in, because I'm not telling you. But this is how Daniel was able to stand strong for the Lord, right? Like, when Daniel found himself face to face with the decision in the lion's den, He didn't just all of a sudden decide he was going to stand firm for the Lord. He was 80-something years old at this point. Daniel had spent the last 70 years in the mundane, small, minute, happy, joyous times of his life, forming these good habits that brought him to the place where he could stand strong for God in the lion's den. That decision was made long before he was ever faced with it. When Daniel put his faith in Christ, he had already counted the cost, right? He knew what was going to happen for him, even when life was good. Now... What does this mean for Christians today? What I'm trying to tell you is you're not going to stand strong for the Lord in a moment of adversity, in a moment of trial, or in a moment where you've got to make a bold decision. You will not stand strong for the Lord if you can't be bold enough to spend time with God each day. If you can't go home and spend time in the Word, if you can't spend time in prayer, and if you can't check in with God and love Him when things are going well, what makes you think you could do it in a time of adversity, you know? I read a quote somewhere the other day that said, Christian character isn't forged in the moment of adversity, it's revealed in it. So if anything, when you find yourself in these moments of adversity like Daniel, what your decisions are then, like those trials and and, and issues and adversity, they're going to reveal how strong your relationship with the Lord is. They're not going to forge it. Now, God may make good on it afterwards and help you grow through that process, but that's not the whole point of what we're talking about here. So... How do we see Daniel building this character throughout the passage? Well, the first thing I see is that he exercised faith, right? He exercised faith. Look at verse 4. And this is the ESV translation. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground or complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. There's a direct connection between Daniel's character and his faith in the law of his God, his faith in the promises of God, his faith in the word of God. Because Daniel trusted in the promises of God, he trusted in the word of God. It dictated his emotions. It dictated his thoughts, his actions, his decisions. And what i'm telling you is because daniel believed in this much of the bible that meant that he had faith in this much of the bible and it controlled how he made his decisions from that point moving forward now again bear in mind he's been taken captive three times as we talked about or through three different kingdoms and his his future was pretty uncertain wouldn't you say i mean he was taken from his homeland he had no idea what was coming next and it seemed like king after king came by And uh, he he didn't know what would be the next thing, and yet he still flourished. He still flourished. Daniel had faith in the unseen. That's a key piece. you got to understand that when we talk about faith, this is based on something you can't see, you can't know, you can't be certain of. And this allowed him the ability to do a couple of things. This allowed Daniel to remain confident in the uncertain times, and it allowed him to remain Christ-like instead of being reactive. For a lot of people, when we face these uncertain situations, we we just react, right? We're not trusting in the Lord. We don't have faith and confidence that God's going to work it out to our good. So we respond reactively. And I think about Daniel, I mean, can you imagine yourself in those shoes? I, I just feel like for me, I would have been clawing and kicking and screaming, trying to emerge victorious, if you will, you know, trying to fight my way to the top because I was being reactive to all these uncertain situations instead of remaining calm. Now, for us, I think we have to redefine our understanding of faith because if I were to ask the question, what is faith? Most people would respond with something along the lines of, it's trusting in Jesus or it's, you know, you have faith in what Christ done for you. And that's true. That's not incorrect, but it's, a, it's incomplete. I think it goes a little deeper than where we take it. In James 2:17, it says, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Listen, faith means when we can't be certain of the outcome, we trust what God said in his word, and we step accordingly. If I have faith, it should promote an action out of me. We can't just simply say that we trust in all of this, and yet, it doesn't spark a response in any way from our lives. We don't step any different in accordance with the rest of God's word. And that's the problem for many of us. We're not okay with uncertainty, right? I don't, I don't like not knowing what happens at the end of this thing. And it starts to influence the way we make our decisions. Like if I can't guarantee myself that on the back end of this thing I'm guaranteed success or like something good's going to come from it, I'm probably not leaning into it. I'm only going to step in the direction of the things that I know I can control the outcome of. Hey, you telling me if I step into this, there's a 100% success rate? Absolutely. I'm going there. But if you tell me, like, hey, this thing could fold, right? Like, you're, you know, you feel like God's leading you into a different job, but you don't know what might happen. You could lose your job, and then that 401K you had built up or whatever, you know, it's not going to work out. Like, people are hesitant. People aren't making those decisions a lot of times, including myself. Because we can't trust the outcome. But that's the opposite for Daniel. It's the opposite for Daniel. Daniel actually stepped in faith of the unseen work and promises of God. So how would your character grow if you started stepping into things with faith that had an uncertain outcome? I think it begins to to craft this dependence on God for us. I'll show you in Daniel's life. Back in chapter 2, I told you about King Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream. And it started to trouble him and he says bring me the wise men of Babylon and he tells them, you're not only going to interpret my dream but you're going to tell me what the dream was all right and if you can't do that I'm going to kill you and all the wise men from Judah so they couldn't do it and then he issues the decree to kill all of them Well, when the guy goes to Daniel and tells him what's about to happen Daniel calmly responded with why would he make such a decree I'd like to go speak with him so he goes to the king and he says hey I'll interpret your dream I'll even tell you your dream just give me give me some time let me run go talk to my God I'll come back and I'll deal with it the king says okay that's fine so then we pick up in chapter 2 verse 17 then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah Mishael and Azariah he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men from Babylon now during the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision Daniel goes on to praise God for everything he had done. But the first thing I want you to see, Daniel was not a dream interpreter at this point, okay? And I say that to explain, like, Daniel had no reason to believe that if he went to the king and said, I'll do this for you, it was going to work out. God hadn't revealed anything to Daniel in Scripture up to this point to say, you should go do this. Daniel simply stepped out and done it on his own. And then he goes back, and they live in constant prayer with his friends, trusting that God would actually step into that. Now, also remember he was facing death right now. And I know we didn't read the whole passage, but as you read through it, you'll see Daniel was pretty calm in the midst of all of it. Daniel wasn't weary and hesitant, and it wasn't like he didn't trust God. He simply very calmly told the king what he would do. He very calmly prayed to God, and then he very calmly went back and interpreted the dream. So this was a recurring theme for Daniel. He trusted and in, in, he had faith in the unseen promises of God. He exercised that faith though, again, he didn't just say he did, Daniel's actions proved that he had the faith he was talking about. His actions proved that what I say I believe, I really do because I'm stepping off a cliff in almost every decision here, trusting that God's going to be there to deal with it and work it all out. Now, (coughs) excuse me, this recurring theme for Daniel of exercising his faith certainly crafted such a strong relationship with the Lord and the lion's den, the choices he made there. But the second thing that crafted Daniel's character was prayer. So we've got, already we've got faith, him exercising his faith, and now we're in prayer. Look at verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows pointed to Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel prayed. The first thing I want you to notice about Daniel's prayer is that it was consistent and it was predictable okay it was consistent and it was predictable the passage reads just as he had done before other translations are as he had previously done as was his custom it, he had done this they're trying to set up an idea of a repetition repetition now even even the men the people who were accusing them they knew exactly where to find him. like they it says that they went and they found him praying they set him up they knew where he was going they knew what he was going to do and they found him, and then they go back and tell the king. So for 70-something years now, Daniel's been praying what we can assume was three times a day. And when he heard the news that the decree had been made, Daniel didn't pray more. All right, Daniel didn't pray less. Daniel simply carried on with the consistent relationship with God that he had had in the mundane moments of his life. It didn't change anything for him. This was, prayer was Daniel's first response, not his last resort. Like the issue that he found himself in didn't shape that in any way. Now the second thing I want you to notice is that Daniel's prayer was private. Daniel didn't try to prove a point. Uh, Hold on, let me stop there and say this doesn't mean I I don't want you praying in public or I don't think you should. I encourage you to pray in public. I'm just making the point here that Daniel didn't make a big spectacle about what was going on. All right, he didn't say, "Well, are you telling me you're going to make a law I can't pray?" I'm I'm going to organize a posse and we're going to pray on the courthouse steps for 12 hours on Sunday. Never mind the fact that we don't pray Monday through Saturday. We're just going to come do it 12 hours this day. Daniel wasn't trying to earn the praise of men. He simply wanted connection with his God as he had always and consistently done. He went upstairs to his upper room. He wasn't boastful. He wasn't arrogant. He simply got along with God. Now, one of my favorite questions in our heart and soul class that we teach here. Is does your private devotion outweigh your public passion and I think Daniel is a prime example here he didn't pray to be seen by men he didn't pray to become religious he just had a private devotion that outweighed his public passion now how does prayer build this character I think prayer reminds us in my opinion that it's usually initiated because of a dependence on God when we pray We're usually at the point of accepting the fact that we can't control the outcome, right? We're usually accepting the fact that, God, I need this from you. Like, if you don't give this to me, if you don't work this out in my life, I can't handle it. I can't deal with it. Listen to me. A lack of prayer to God reveals an influx of pride in you, okay? If we're not consistently calling on God in prayer, it's because we assume we've got things handled and a lot of times this happens when your christian your faith as a christian is in neutral at least for me anyway it does things usually seem to be going pretty good and chugging along and then i start to realize that like things are actually working out and i haven't been praying a lot okay so i start to feel like well things are great you know i've got it under control so now i don't need god almost i don't intend for it to be that way but a lot of times that's what's happened have you ever noticed that When you think all hope is lost, like, you know, you can't control the situation. It's gotten so bad that you can't save yourself. You can't help yourself. You all of a sudden start praying pretty easy. I think back to when I was in high school and uh, I would intentionally skip my curfew a lot, right? I would, uh, knew I had to be home at such and such a time and I wouldn't leave. And it was all fun and games until I got in the truck knowing my mama was about to smoke me when I got home. And it wasn't so funny then. It's, All the way home, God, please don't let her be awake. Please don't let her be awake. Like, if you'll just let her sleep through this, I swear I won't ever do it again. You know, and I say that jokingly, but that's a good example. Like, it's truth. We have to find ourselves in a time of desperation a lot before we realize that we need God, that we need to call on Him in prayer, and uh, we just have to understand that we, a lot of times, we can't leave it as our last resort. Don't go to God in prayer only when you feel like you can't control the outcome. Because if we're being honest. You need Christ to take every breath, every step. Like You're dependent on God each day, whether you think it or not. So we should be going to him in prayer each day. Now, in creating this personal, consistent time of prayer, Daniel was slowly removing the pride from his life and building a character of humility. And I think for a lot of us, we could really use a little humility. So I ask, does your private devotion outweigh your public passion? Now, we've talked about faith and we talked about prayer I think Daniel's faith in the unseen promises of God and his prayer and communion with the Lord produced the last thing we see in his character and it's obedience right now obedience is a tough topic because again I don't want you guys to think that I'm telling you you can work to earn God's favor but once you've accepted grace and received Christ as your savior now you've been freed up to become obedient to the God we serve right, Daniel's obedience didn't start in chapter 6 either Daniel's obedience didn't start in the lion's den. Daniel's obedience started long before this. Uh, I think about chapter one and Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar's taken over. He brings those wise men from Judah into his own household and he tells his, we'll call him a nutritionist for today. He says, hey, I want you to feed these men the same thing that we eat. I want them to eat from the royal menu because I want him to stay healthy and sleek and looking good and Daniel goes to the nutritionist and he says listen I can't become disobedient to the law of my God and that law says I can't eat this diet I'm not telling you guys that you can't eat a certain diet but we just see Daniel's obedience and saying I won't do it let's figure something out and the whole time he's facing opposition to the king like Daniel's standing up and saying I won't do what this king says and you know that's already taken me captive and will probably kill him and he works out a deal to where he can actually try out vegetables and water for 10 days. And it worked out for his good. Point being, you see him walking in obedience. Now, again, moving on into chapter 6, Daniel continues his obedience and prayer. He found himself yet again in opposition to the king. King says, do this. Daniel says, I can't defy my God. I will walk in obedience to my God. He goes directly to the upper room and he prays. And then he gets called to the lion's den. And when you read the passage, it says that after the king had to get Daniel and put him in the lion's den, he sent for him. So I'm assuming Daniel could have fled, he could have ran, but instead he decides to walk in obedience and trust in his faithfulness to God. What really blows my mind, though, is that Daniel wasn't only obedient to God. Daniel was also obedient to the people that God had put over him. He was obedient to the king and the governors and the people Look at verse 4 again. The administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. Where? In his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. So throughout Daniel's life, he had made decision after decision to choose to do what was right. And I keep saying decision because it's just that. We don't accidentally fall into disobedience. It just doesn't happen. You, you make a choice. You've got to walk in a righteous way or you've got to walk in obedience. So Daniel chose to walk in a righteous way. And Ezekiel Ezekiel references Daniel uh, in the same category as Noah and Job. He basically talks about how they were the three most righteous men to walk, aside from Christ, of course. But, I mean, what a category of people to be be put in with, right? We see Daniel's just simply, he's obedient. But unlike Daniel, there's a lot of Christians today, and I'm not trying to hit on anyone here. I, I mean, I take this weight fully on myself as well. But we profess faith in Christ and we come in here on Sundays. Maybe we go to small groups and stuff like that. And yet we leave those places and we fall back into weekday mode. right? Our language changes. Our actions change. Our attitude changes. Our decisions change. But listen to me. Character is who you are when no one's looking. It's not about who you come in here and put yourself on to be. It's about who you are when you walk out of here and you get in those challenging moments during the week. God wants who you are in public and private to be the same. It shouldn't change one behind the other. And if that's you, let me just say, (laughs) this, this breaks God's heart, right? This will destroy your character. And it's not about God trying to oppress you or to oppress the fun out of your life. God's not being oppressive. God sees what this type of disobedience can do to your soul over time. He sees where this puts you, and he knows that it separates you from him. And God doesn't want that for you. It breaks his heart so as you listen to this it's not about God beating up on you because you're just simply not good enough it's about God wanting what's best for you it's about God knowing that disobedience will corrupt your soul but listen being obedient to God isn't something just like character that you stumble into we've said it's a decision it's a conscious decision when you get up each morning you've got a choice to make so first thing that's going to come to my mind is do I want to gratify the cravings of the flesh or do I want to honor God? When I wake up super duper early and I'm tired, do I want to get 30 minutes of sleep? Do I want to sleep for another 40 minutes or whatever? Or do I want to get up and spend time with God and allow him to transform my life through his word? That's a simple example. But I mean, each day, like you've got a choice to make. You've got a choice to make. And we have to make gospel decisions. So listen, if it's destroying your soul, don't do it. All right? If you know that you've been getting wasted drunk every Friday night and your marriage is in flames because of it, stop drinking. If getting on the internet when no one is around is leading you into sexual sin, stop getting on the internet. Don't do it. Choose obedience. If your love for money is keeping you from being home, loving your wife and discipling your family, get a new job. And I know now, that's easier said than done. I understand that like, a lot of you are probably thinking, well, hey, like, that's not exactly easy. And I get that. Obedience may not be easy, but it's a choice, and it's one you've got to make. It's up to you. Obedience is as simple as making the choice to honor God above your own desires. So simply said, a lot harder done. I completely understand that. But that's where we find ourselves as Christians. And if you hear anything, I want you to hear this. When we walk in obedience to God's word... I can guarantee you right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it will do two things if you walk in obedience. It will bring glory to God's name, and it will always work out for your good. Even if it doesn't seem that way, it will. And there's no two better incentives than that to walk in obedience, in my opinion. So here's my question for that first point. We're we're talking about character. Daniel had a character that allowed him the influence with people, the influence with kings, it allowed him a healthy relationship with God. And we need that same Christian character in our lives to win other people to Christ. They need to trust what we've got to say. I want people to know by looking at my life that Christ really is the Savior. Christ really can change a sinner. And for that to happen, I've got to have good Christian integrity and Christian character. People need to be able to trust me. So let me ask you, are the rhythms that you're building in your everyday week, and the mundane moments of your life, are those rhythms building Christian character or worldly passions? Think about that. Now let's move into our second point for this morning, which is what do we learn from God? Now, just like Daniel, I want to pick out one word here that I think of whenever I read this story about God. And there's many, obviously, everything good and holy comes from God. But today, in this passage, I think of the word faithful. I think of the word faithful. Let me show you why. A couple of the things that we see pretty clearly in this, in this passage is God's faithful to be present with us in the trial, okay? God's faithful to be with us or present with us in the trial. When Daniel was in the lion's den, we know that the king was troubled that he was going to have to throw Daniel in there, all right? So the next morning, whenever he goes back to check on Daniel, he's like, Daniel, Daniel, are you alive? Like, did your God save you? What was Daniel's response? Listen, dude, not only did he save me, but he was with me. Daniel was the only one in the whole story that really got a good night's sleep in the lion's den. The king was up all night. Daniel says, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. God was present with Daniel. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these are names you're probably familiar with, but just shorter back in the book of Daniel, we see King Nebuchadnezzar tell these three men, you're going to bow to my statue or my golden image, and if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And their response was, hey, whatever. We're not bowing. We'll go to the furnace. God's good either way, right? So he throws them into the furnace, and I want you to see what King Nebuchadnezzar said. He leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, well, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. God himself was present with his children in the midst of their trial. And I know that these are some examples that we may not feel directly related to, but I want you to listen to Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. I don't think there's a question at this point of whether or not God was with Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of their trial. And there shouldn't be any question as to whether he's with us in the midst of a trial. The greatest promise in all of scripture is the promise of God's presence. That is the most amazing thing that God has ever given me, you guys, or any of his children, is that he would always be present with us. Daniel believed that God was with him, and Daniel trusted that God wouldn't leave him alone, and he didn't. Some of you guys, maybe you're walking through the most difficult thing you've ever faced right now. Maybe some of you have recently walked through one of the most difficult things and are having trouble getting past it. And some of you, I guarantee, will eventually walk through something that is the most difficult thing you've ever faced. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's infertility, cancer, divorce. The list goes on and on. But if you're walking through any of those things, or if you find yourself in any of those things, what you need to hear today is that God's with you. God is present in the trial with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And listen, don't ever mistake the silence of God for the absence of God. Okay? A lot of times when we find ourselves in those trials and those struggles, we have this mentality that God should just deliver us from it. Right? We feel like the same way he did with Daniel, he should just bring us directly out of it. But when God doesn't respond in that way, our minds automatically go to he's not listening. He's not there. Why is God not delivering me from this? I've, I'm trying, I'm praying, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. Like, why is God not bringing me out of this? I, have, have you ever asked that question or had that thought? Like, Where's God at in this? Like, why is God not listening to me? Why would God do this? And uh, to some degree, and this is very personal to me, but I was pretty young. So to the extent that I could, I kind of had this same feeling when my dad passed away. Um, I was very young. He passed away on Christmas and it was a bad situation, Right. And I remember thinking, like, I didn't know a lot about the Christian faith. I mean, I'd been in church all my life to that point. But I remember thinking, I thought he was good. I thought he cared about me. I thought God loved me. You know, why would this happen? And I would just cry and cry. And then I remember sometime afterwards, something else about my dad passing. I would find myself with my grandmother, who was his mom. Um, and I'd think about her specifically because she was dealing with a lot of the same pain I was. But I remember when I would see her, you know, a lot of times I would just break down in tears and I would just cry because I didn't understand it. And a lot of times she wouldn't speak to me. She wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't do anything. She would simply grab me. She would hold me and she would cry with me. And in those moments, I just remember thinking like, this is someone who hurts with me. This is someone who understands my pain. This is someone who's not saying a word. She's not taking away my pain. But she certainly held me through the midst of it, and I knew she was there. And I knew that that comforted me in a way. I had faith that someone was hurting with me. Someone was walking through it with me. And it's no different for God. It's the same situation. God's holding you in your trial. God's with you. You can trust it. He may be silent. He may not have the right words. He may not do what you want him to do. But he's hurting with you, and he's there. He's walking through the same thing with you. So how would it change the way you face your circumstances if you believe God was present with you in that way. And I'll tell you how. The answer is hope. It would give you hope in your trial. It would help you to walk through these things. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about God being faithful is that he's faithful to work out all things for your good and his glory. He made that promise and he is faithful to it. He will work all things out for your good and his glory. Let's look back at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just shared that story from earlier in Daniel. There's a pattern. Trial, deliverance, God's glory gets spread, right? God's name is spread. So when I think about those guys, they were thrown in the furnace. God brought them out of the furnace. But this is the part that, again, when we tell this story, we we leave off. We forget to tell. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him. And defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces in their house, turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. God delivered these men and God honored his name. Right, His glory was spread. Look at Daniel. The lion's den, same pattern. Trial, deliverance, name spread. All right? Daniel faces the trial. He's thrown into the lion's den. God delivered him up out of it unharmed. And then afterwards, again, a piece that we leave off of it, King Darius says, Then King Darius wrote to all the nations of peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. So there's two people here. We've seen God work it out for their good and his glory. But I want to show you another story. The story of Stephen in the book of Acts, chapter 6. His pattern looks a little bit different. His pattern is not trial, deliverance, name spread. It's trial, death, God's church gets spread. Okay? So Stephen goes before the Sanhedrin, and he preaches the longest sermon in the New Testament. And he stands bold for God, but then he gets stoned immediately after And Stephen actually, right before Stephen passes, you see this image of the son standing at the right hand of the father. And let me just point out, anywhere else in scripture that you read, the son is seated at the right hand of the father. And in Acts chapter 6, he is standing at the right hand of the father, and he welcomes Stephen home. But right after that, the church exploded out of Jerusalem. Because of the persecution that Stephen faced, Christians actually... Like grew some legs and got up out of Jerusalem and took the church elsewhere. So again, I, I say all that, why, why do I even bring up Stephen? But what I, what I want you to see is like, you, you'd probably say, well, that doesn't sound very good for Stephen, right? Like God, doesn't seem like God's working things out for Stephen's good and God's glory. But the Son of God was standing at the right hand of the Father for Stephen and he welcomed him home. If anything, I'd say the other two stories drew the short stick because they remained here to face another trial. They remain here to go through something else. They remain here to fight the sin that we all fight today. So hear me when I say God is faithful to work all things out for your good and his glory. In some cases, the best thing that God can do, in some cases, what's good for us, which we will never understand, only God can. But the best thing for him to do is not to bring us out of it, but to simply give us the strength to stand firm for him, even if it means facing death. Like, God worked out what was good for Stephen, the same that he did for the other men. God never promised that life would be easy, but he guaranteed that he'd be enough. So in all three of those stories, we see a good God working for our good and his glory. Notice, our good and his glory go hand in hand. The two can't be disconnected. But this is contradictory to the way the world thinks. So for a lot of people, the world sees our good as safety and comfort. The world sees our good as what instantly satisfies us in the moment. If we were in this trial, or if we were in some sort of persecution, what instantly satisfies us is to get up out of the persecution, to get up out of the the uncomfortable situations, right? But God doesn't always respond in that way. We need to understand, uh, Jesus taught something completely different. Jesus said, to find life, you must lay your life down, okay, for his glory. And to lay our lives down, I'm not trying to tell you guys that you need to put yourself in a bad situation. I'm not telling you you got to move to Afghanistan or something like that. What I am telling you, though, is that to lay your life down in the sense of this passage means to forget everything you think is good, to forget everything you think satisfies you, and put your trust in the fact that God knows what's good for you. God knows what will fully satisfy you. We need to understand that in the kingdom, our good may not always be personal safety. It may not always be worldly comfort and it may not always be good physical health. We don't get to decide what's good for us. God's not worried about what gives you pleasure for a brief time, brief time on earth. God's worried about what will satisfy your soul for an eternity. And that means that as a Christian, our good is God's glorification. Our good is that God will be glorified through us in life or death. And then we would be received into his kingdom. So just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't get to choose what's best for us. We simply get to choose to obey. And when we obey, God's glorified through our lives. So my last question for that point there is, is comfort and security more important to you than God's glory going forward? Do you trust that God's working things out for your good and his glory? And this brings me to the last point for today. I want to close with this. Um, How do we see a picture of Jesus? Jesus one of my favorite things about this series that we're in knowing God is as we've walked through the old testament we've consistently found imagery and pictures and foreshadowing of Christ in the old testament and that's just been just really fun and amazing for me so i want to remind you that even here in daniel daniel's not the hero of this story Daniel's faith, Daniel's obedience, his prayer life, what he did in the lion's den, it's great and it's amazing. And there's things we can learn from, but Daniel's not the hero. Christ is. And although Christ's name isn't explicitly mentioned, there is so much foreshadowing in Daniel's situation that points us to the coming of the Messiah. I want to talk to you about a few similarities real quick. So both Daniel and Jesus were a picture of innocence. Daniel had done no harm and yet found himself in the tomb same thing with christ christ had done no wrong he was perfectly innocent and yet found himself in the tomb both of which on behalf of sinners both daniel and jesus had jealous political leaders who had to drum up false charges so daniel had the governors who couldn't find anything wrong with them but they were scared that daniel was going to take over their political power if he raised any higher so they drummed up these false charges Jesus had Caiaphas and the people of the Sanhedrin the Jewish people they knew that if this thing with Christ was true and it ended up working out for the people that they would lose all power that they had because they used religion over their heads so basically they drummed up false charges against Christ both Daniel and Jesus had the primary judge on their side while the people turned against them and let me just say the primary judges were not believers to begin with So King Darius went to bat for Daniel. He was grieved over the fact that Daniel was going to be thrown in the lion's den, and he tried to change it. But he couldn't change it because the people turned against him with Christ. Pilate tells the people, Christ has done no wrong to you. But I tell you what, as is our custom, I'll release one of them, and they chose the murderer over Christ. The primary judge went to bat for him while the people turned against him. Both Daniel and Jesus were thrown into a tomb that was sealed with the king's signet. Guys, this isn't me making this up. They're very explicit. God was super intentional with these passages. When they said that a stone was placed in front of the tomb and the king sealed it with his signet, they were trying to prove that what is happening here can't be undone. There was even the Medo-Persian law that they couldn't change the rules like I told you about earlier. There was emphasis. This can't be fixed. This can't be changed. Daniel's fate is sealed. Same thing with Christ. The king put his signet on the stone that they rolled in front of the tomb. This cannot be changed. This Christ is dead. He is in this tomb. But God uses his power and his might to show us that he can change the things that man can't change. He says, I don't care what signet is on this this stone. Which brings me to my next point. Both Daniel and Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. The next morning, although that stone was sealed with the king's signet, he emerged alive. Same thing with Christ. Although that tomb was sealed with the king's signet, Jesus walked out of that tomb. And both Daniel and Jesus emerged seated at the right hand of the king. When Daniel came out of the tomb, he sat at the right hand of King Darius. And when Christ came out of the tomb, he was seated at the right hand of the father over the whole kingdom. With all those similarities, there's two major differences between Daniel and Jesus. (laughs) Listen to me. Jesus was actually pierced by the lions. And while Daniel died, Christ defeated death and is still alive. (laughs) Psalm 22, 21 through 22 says this. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. The Roman symbol was a lion. It was on every breastplate of every Roman soldier. It was on every flag. And in this psalm right here, David is foreshadowing Christ on the cross. And the lions that encompassed him were the Roman soldiers that stood around the cross while Jesus hung there. The lions were the Roman soldiers that pierced Christ with the spear. What I want you to understand is while Daniel couldn't save anyone, he's pointing you to Christ. He's pointing you to the one that would go into the tomb and walk out of it. Christ was on that cross on our behalf. We're sinners. We're separated from God. And we can't earn our way to the Father and we have never deserved to even be there in the first place but Christ got up on the cross and he bore the punishment that we deserved it wasn't just a physical torture Christ became our sin and he faced that separation that we deserved but because he walked out of the tomb alive we can know God We can have a relationship with God. We can walk with God. We can be obedient now. We can enjoy the things that God has for us. So if I can encourage you with anything, it's when you look at Daniel, you see someone who couldn't save you, but pointed to a Messiah that could. It points you to the only hope that you have in this world. So with that, I want to pray for us. And then we'll get out of here. We'll enjoy one more song. God, I thank you first and foremost, for your salvation. I thank you for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. I thank you for putting the story of Daniel in the Old Testament for us to know you, to see Christ, and to get a better picture of what he's accomplished on our behalf. Help us look to you, Jesus. Help us see you and what you've done on the cross. And help us to honor you with our lives, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.